You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for May 2022. I am your host, Shelley Wood, recording this from Europe, where I have been covering the EuroPCR and ESC heart failure meetings for TCTMD. It has been a real treat to see so many familiar faces at these meetings. Although if I'm being honest with you, it's a lot of face and not a whole lot of mask. Hope everyone gets home safely. It's not just meeting season, however. Earlier this month was Women's Health Week, which kicks off every Mother's Day with the aim of encouraging women and girls to make their health a priority. The American Heart Association marked the occasion by releasing a presidential advisory entitled Call to Action for Cardiovascular Disease in Women. Nanette Kaswanger of Emory University in Atlanta is the lead author on the document, and she joined me for Heart Sounds this month. We were joined also by another leading voice in this field, Dr. Jennifer Mirez of Northwell Health in Hempstead, New York. Dr. Wenger and Dr. Miraz, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for asking us. A pleasure to be here. Heart disease in women has been a long-standing interest for both of you, raising awareness about risk factors and symptoms in women, but also the need to do a better job studying heart disease in women, and then the rather bad track record to date of doing so. Dr. Wenger, you are the lead author on a new AHA presidential advisory called A Call to Action for Cardiovascular Disease in Women. Why now? Why now? First, uh, this week is Women's Health Week. And as we all know, heart disease is women's major health problem. And therefore, what we must do is to see that women have optimal access to preventive strategies, optimal access to diagnosis, and optimal therapies that are specific to women. You see, perhaps we have to undergo a cultural shift because when we talk about symptoms in men, that is sometimes viewed as the gold standard. And if women's symptoms are different, they are seen to be not quite the same alternate or alien. And what this does is it totally disregards the unique aspects of women across the lifespan. So as we present data to the community, we have to present the data for men and the data specific to women. And that community is the public, That community is the professional group, and that community uh, includes those that are involved in public policy as well. I mean, for years we heard, oh, you know, symptoms in women, as you say, are not the same as men. But what I'm hearing more of now is, of course, there's going to be unique issues for women that need to be paid attention to, and and many of those earlier in life. Dr. Miras, we can't go into too much depth, but briefly, can you just speak to some of the more newly recognized risk factors that you would like my audience, mostly cardiologists, to know about and be asking about with their female patients? Uh, we have recognized that chest pain, chest pressure is the most common presenting symptoms of acute myocardial infarction, acute coronary syndromes in women. We have also known, and the new chest pain guidelines were released a few months ago in 2021, highlighting the accompanying symptoms that go along, such as nausea, shortness of breath, 
a host of symptoms that we have to be on the lookout for. And what is important in the chest pain guidelines released in November of 2021 is that we have abandoned the term atypical chest pain. To add to what Dr. Wenger said, when we use atypical, women were misclassified and led to the underdiagnosis and undertreatment misdiagnosis of women with acute coronary syndromes. So the term atypical needs to be abolished. And we know that women presenting with acute coronary syndromes, myocardial infarction, that there are a spectrum of symptoms that we have to be on the lookout for, including commonly chest pain. In answering your question about some of the unique risk markers for women with acute coronary syndrome or ischemic heart disease, We know that while women will have many of the traditional risk factors, hypertension, elevated cholesterol, diabetes, smoking, obesity, sedentary lifestyle, that we also have to be on the lookout for some of the effects of chronic stress, lack of sleep, that can definitely, we know now, link to inflammatory markers and can predispose to the process of atherosclerosis. Women with autoimmune diseases are at a higher risk for ischemic heart disease. And we also know now evidence of pregnancy-related complications, that pregnancy is a sort of stress test, as Dr. Wenger coined that phrase. And we know that women who have had complications of pregnancy, gestational diabetes, gestational hypertension, eclampsia, preeclampsia, as well as the birth, preterm birth and the birth of a um, low weight infant can go on to have at risk for ischemic heart disease and can present with um, heart disease five to 15 years later. And so what we, what we want our physicians to do is in looking at the risk assessment of women to include the pregnancy history. Let me go back and add two more risk attributes. Dr. Miras added something in terms of the mental health aspects. But what we know is that depression and anxiety uh, are associated with heart disease much more for women than for men, and they happen at younger ages. And I'm gonna come back to the younger in a moment, but also the fact that there are risks that are related to cancer treatments that are more prevalent in women, such as uh, treatments for breast cancer, treatments for uterine and ovarian cancer. And sadly, I will tell the woman in my clinic, your breast cancer is cured, but unfortunately you have heart disease. And what we must do is have a team. It it takes a village and the village will be the oncologists and the cardiologists, et cetera, to see that we study these women at the onset of their chemotherapy, that we try to find things that will allow them to have their life-saving chemotherapy, but protect their heart. So this area of cardio-oncology is highly, highly relevant to women. But the feature I think that both Dr. Mraz and I have seen is that we're seeing heart disease in younger and younger women. And the women who contemplate pregnancy are often coming to that pregnancy with a a lower heart health status. And if you compare the heart health of pregnant women to comparably aged women who are non-pregnant, the pregnant women have lower heart health. And therefore it's not surprising that we are seeing an excess of preeclampsia, of 
cardiovascular complications of pregnancy and of morbidity and mortality with pregnancy. So this requires, again, the OBGYNs who are often the patient's primary care physicians. And you know, the OBGYN community is in the preventive mode. They do mammograms, they do pap smears. Now they must become involved with preventive strategies for heart disease, which is yep. women's major health risk. Yeah, I would definitely uh, direct people to look at the presidential statement because it does go into some of the details there that I think are so important. But Dr. Wenger, we've also heard and we know for many years that the proven therapies are not used as widely or as commonly in women as they should be. And also that many of the things approved by regulators were really tested largely in white middle-aged men. Can you bring us up to speed in terms of the status of trying to get women studied better to get clinical trial representation? And I would say not just women, but also other underrepresented groups as well. We have to do very much better in terms of our recruitment for clinical trials. And we have had enormous success in recruiting both women and minorities at our medical center. And the reason for it is that we assume that they will want to be represented and in the trials that I have led, uh, trials of hormone therapy and so forth, the women who enroll in our trials, and some of these were six and seven year long trials, they said, we're doing this because we want for our daughters and granddaughters, the same new information we have for our sons and grandsons. And this should resonate with women, perhaps because women often don't see a trial principal investigator who looks like them. Yeah. They are less likely to enroll. And we've seen again and again that the trials that have women in leadership tend to enroll more women. The trials that have minority representation in leadership tend to enroll more racial and ethnic minorities. And it's important that we realize that as we learn from COVID, COVID has taught us that there is major disparity among subgroups and racial and ethnic minorities are targeted partly because of their limited access to care, partly because of many social determinants of health, but these are the individuals at risk. And therefore these are the individuals that must be involved in our clinical trials. Right. And I've heard before that sponsors need to take into consideration the fact that there are uh, unique barriers to women and some underrepresented groups in getting physically to clinical trial sites or in receiving some of the medications that they would need. So, uh, Dr. Mira's COVID has helped to get over some of those barriers. Any other ones you want to highlight? Because presumably physicians need to get the message that they need to invite more women, more minority groups to be in these trials. We need to engage communities. And when we look at the six sort of um, components of a call to action to increase awareness, to optimize prevention and clinical care, support research, advocate, monitor progress, engaging communities, I think is so critical for underrepresented groups. Because when you think of engaging communities with faith-based organizations, that partnership with faith-based organizations, as well as medical centers and research uh, trialists, you find that if you have that partnership, and we 
discovered that at, at Northwell when we were enrolling for our COVID trials, that once we had our faith-based communities uh, as partners, they were the trusted members in the communities and women and women and minority um, participants were trusted their faith-based congregants and pastors. And so we were able to increase our underrepresented groups in many of our trials, talk, speaking about lessons learned from COVID. So I think a critical point in the presidential statement, there are many critical points, but one key piece that is um, issue sort of this formalized approach to engaging communities, even starting with you know, school-based programs, then community interventions and the faith-based aspect as being really important to build that trusted relationship with medical centers, medical communities and clinical uh, researchers. Mm -hmm. One of the things I was thinking about is this is a topic of, of huge interest to you both. It's been something I've been interested in for a long time. But the reality is that many of the cardiologists that are in these very senior positions in academia, as, as well as cl in clinical practice, they don't necessarily have this passion. And I'm wondering how you convince a population of cardiologists that a group of patients that doesn't look like them or perhaps is a different gender, how do they take an interest in this topic and realize that having more representative faces on, in terms of the physicians and then more representation in clinical trials matters? How do you get that out there or how does this not stay a sort of niche issue? Well, you know, when I was in medical school and when I was in training, uh, the 50 to 60 year old Caucasian male was considered the norm and everything was based on data derived from that population. And what we have learned is that we have to really address so many things. The term social determinants of health was not in my vocabulary as a medical student and as a trainee. And what we begin to realize and what COVID has taught us excessively is that these are intrinsic parts both of clinical care and should be emphasized and looked for specifically in the electronic health records. They should be upfront for every physician encounter. And what we have to realize is that the care of the patient really includes access to healthy food, access to public spaces for physical activity, access to high quality prevention and treatment. Some of that is going to be dependent on public policy because it is going to be dependent on insurance. It's going to be dependent on access to government programs, Medicare and Medicaid. And we're all going into the political season. And as health professionals, what we must do is see that health policy is part of the agenda for every one of the candidates that we support. And that health policy has to address diversity and inclusiveness. We don't have quite enough time to cover all of this, but I would say, given the size of this topic, given the need to make more people invest in it or, or call their representative to help with that public policy piece, if there was one thing you think physicians and others listening to this podcast should do differently or, or check their biases in some way so that women, and I would say particularly women from underserved racial and ethnic minorities, got better care. Dr. Miraz, what would you say? What should they hear here today? 
I would say COVID was a catalyst for healthcare redesign. The Institute of Medicine published at the turn of the 21st century that we needed to redesign healthcare really to see our patients as partners. And that what we need to remember is that health outcomes, 80% of health outcomes depends on everything other than the medical encounter and depends on the social determinants of health, as Dr. Wenger mentioned. And I think we need to expand our lens and look at the health of a woman, the health of a woman who is different with an expanded lens to figure out what matters to her. So including the social determinants of health into the sort of risk assessment and treatment plan will foster shared decision-making. And so I think moving from an acute care thinking lens to think of prevention and what are the components, which includes access to care, health literacy, how we're communicating, all of these factors, including language. What is the woman's preferred language? And especially someone comes from a different part of the world where they speak, say, Spanish or Russian or something 90% of the time, how we communicate, all of these components need to be in it. And I think that we need to recognize the science is changing. We have shifted from thinking just of acute care because you know people are living much longer. We can cure coronary artery disease and ischemic heart disease, but we have to focus on the preventive aspects. And in so doing, the determinants of health need to be incorporated into our entire treatment plan. And we have to know that we're all biased. And that we need to, when we see someone, hit the pause button to check our biases and be much more engaged listeners to really foster shared decision making. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing a little bit because you can never ask a person in this field to say one thing. You could just, <laughs> that, was a, that was a package answer for sure, but all but of it important. Dr. But you can, cut different, you can cut different pieces off, right? Hopefully. No, no, I'm keeping it all. Dr. Wenger, but, do you want to you, you know, one, one of the things is we've spent so much time looking backward as to what has happened. And obviously that's important. But we must emphasize forward-looking so that as we learn new features, they will raise new questions. And this will be a research agenda. And as we examine what has happened with heart disease in women, which is the focus of this advisory, we have just begun the journey. There are many questions that have not yet been asked, and that will give us more questions that yet have to be answered. It sounds like a, a good note to end on. Even as we were talking about biases and I was preparing for this interview, I was thinking about all the things I'm quite comfortable talking about as a journalist. But then I think there's a need to become a little bit comfortable with being uncomfortable because I think these are going to be difficult conversations for many people. And I got a bit of a reminder about that myself today. So thank you both for making me comfortably uncomfortable on what's such an important topic. Thank, Thank you for you. asking us. Thank you very much. An honor and pleasure Bye -bye. to be with Dr. Wenger. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank Bye. you both. Bye-bye. That is it for Heart Sounds this month. While we're talking about women's health and listening to women's voices, I will also point you in the direction of a feature story by TCTMD's Todd Neal looking at abortion access in the United States and what it might mean for cardiologists if women with high-risk cardiac conditions are denied the right to make important choices about their own bodies. 
Todd's feature is entitled, As U.S. Abortion Protections Hang in the Balance, Cardiologists Brace for Impact. I will be leaving that on TCTMD's homepage for as long as I possibly can. Of course, you'll find all our news coverage of May's big cardiology meetings as well. That includes HRS, EuroPCR, Sky, ESC Heart Failure, and the European Atherosclerosis Society Congress. Find all our print stories, videos, and slides under the conference tab at tctmd.com. Big thank you to the entire team for all of your hard work this month around the world and to folks behind the scenes at the Cardiovascular Research Foundation who support our journalism and publish our work. That is it for Heart Sounds this month. Thanks for listening. Do you love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original content from TCTMD featuring Talking Points with Dr. C. Michael Gibson and Rocks Art Radio with Dr. Roxanne Moran. All new episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud. 